Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. I'm Russell Brand. This week I spoke to Nick Hayes. Nick Hayes is an author, illustrator, printmaker and political cartoonist. He's published four highly acclaimed graphic novels, each one in separate ways focusing on mankind, focuses on mankind's relationship with the environment. I've just read his latest book, The Book of Trespass. I got it for Christmas. Um, the Crossing crossing the Lines That Divide Us. It came out this year or last year. I suppose it must be last year. It kind of came out this oh, yeah. year because this year's just, just only passed. just begun to live together. <laughs> Um, I really like this book uh, that he's done, The Book of Trespass. I, I really, really love it. I really recommend it. It's my favourite Christmas present. What else did I get for Christmas, though? Maybe it, did you get anything good for Christmas, Jen? I got a wetsuit. Do you mean that you got a wetsuit <laughs> for diving, or someone just bought you a normal suit that was sodden in fluid? No. You got a wetsuit. I sent you the video of me running into the sea. Oh yeah, in I Ireland. I was wearing a wetsuit on top. Was it one with short sleeves? No. <laughs> Fall to the wrist and ankle. Yeah, but short here, mm. on the leg. Revolting. <laughs> do you have a nice Christmas? Yeah. What'd you do? Well, I stayed in a hotel for the first few days because I had to isolate. I hope you've not been crossing all sorts of borders like a right no. little bottle of COVID. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's right, Jen. We're all perfectly safe. All right, so let's go back to this um, to Nick Hayes, who's a fantastic guest. He's a like journalist, writer. It's a really, really beautiful, profound book that manages to go from very esoteric issues to ordinary experiential writing. Like uh, I read one review that said it's like he's writing it from the sort of by the light of a campfire. But he brings in some very, very interesting points about commercialism, the commodification of nature, colonialism. Like it's, it's a really fascinating and beautiful book that makes you feel like you immediately want to go and hop over a fence and have a real nose around on some private land. And in fact, I did that almost immediately after reading it. Um, here are some, before we get into the episode with beloved Nick Hayes, uh, who we'll do a Zoom call for, won't we? He's like Right to Rome. He's a charity that him and his mate Guy, I think he said his mate was called, like do this, uh, like a campaigning for us to have access to uh, fenced off lands to connect us once again to this beautiful nation of ours. Uh, before we get into all of that, Let's, um, let me read some comments that people said kindly about our Tristan Harris podcast. Callum Fisher said, I find it really quite ironic that despite the world's population being the largest it's ever been, people are more lonely now than ever. It is ironic. That, that is literally ironic, actually, because you should just get one of them people if you are lonely and really bolster, use them as a shield against your own loneliness. Jennifer Grant, a lot of kids are going around saying that the COVID Vax XX has a microchip in it. Laughing, I would answer, look in your hand. You're already microchipped, lol. Nice. Well done, Jennifer Grant. You showed them damn kids. You Like Anne says, one of the best yet. Tristan is a great communicator, and it's great you gave him so much space to speak on your platform. Thanks, Russell. I am great aren't I the way that I carry on and so kind and all that Fibsy I try my best to understand the guest but it doesn't make sense what do you mean Jen why are you even this is good because because you need to explain why okay it's good what his goal is what he wants society to accomplish what he will do with his problem with social media he started a bloody group Fibsy Tristan Harris has done some tremendous work and I suppose what he wants to do is for tech companies to take responsibility for the sort of toxicity and negative impact of their product. I think he wants some sort of state control on it. I think he's explained it, Fibsy, better than anyone I knew. Were it not for Instagram, I've never had the chance to connect to Russell Brand's intelligence and wit. That alone is just the... (laughs) Now I see why it's included. Um, Yeah, 
And what is wrong if I like Russell Brand and double tap on his IG posts? It does not mean I got hypnotized by IG, but more of the brilliance of what Russell has to say. I don't get this social dilemma topic. Something is off here. I don't like this post. <laughs> well, what it is, Fibsy, me old son, is that I suppose that social media is subtly manipulating our attention. The stuff that we're shown and where it leads us is ultimately being directed and controlled by the commercial interests in a sense it's no different than television except it's sort of television with uh, like that's sort of you know turned up to 11 i.e. what I mean is and I was doing this when we were making a video earlier about sort of reporting on in the pan uh, reporting on new year's resolutions during the pandemic that television is just a table upon which commercials are placed and social media just utilises and manipulates our attention. So, of course, you could use Instagram just to look at really positive things like nice food that you could make or campaigning or activism or very positive things. It could be educational. But the fact is, is that what it's biased towards, what social media, not just Instagram, like social media is biased towards, is harnessing and harvesting your attention primarily for the commercial gain of already quite powerful entities. I hope that's clear, Fibsy. And I appreciate these lovely compliments that you've given me now let's get into the podcast with nick hayes trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes that's 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 exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we are told and welcome to russell brand under the skin Nick Hayes, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. Thanks very much for having us. I appreciate it. I got your book for Christmas, uh, The Book of Trespass. I've been reading it all the time. I'm a bit obsessed with it. My wife bought it for me um, because she knows like, I sort of enjoy trespass. I've always had a kind of inkling towards it, an attraction to it, and you articulated it and told that story in a, a way that, that I didn't think was possible, connecting it to uh, issues of class and race and ownership and heritage and history and ecology. Well, how did you come to write this magnificent book, mate? Uh, well, yeah, it, I mean, on, on the outset, maybe like walking over someone's fence really doesn't have anything to do with uh, white supremacy or class supremacy or anything like that. But if you, um, if you just dig a little bit further then you realize that it's really just the kind of physical manifestation of power set in real space kind of thing who who's to say that you can't walk here who's to say that this land is mine and therefore you've got no rights to enjoy or you know to swim in the river or whatever it might be um I guess I first got into it I grew up in the country uh around uh West Berkshire way uh, and I've always been into drawing. I'm an illustrator at the moment. And um, uh, I just took my sketchbook out, either with some friends or on my, on my own. And uh, basically, like, the right of way is fine to draw once or twice or maybe three times. But when there's a fallen cracked willow over there or there's a you know, amazing oak tree in the middle of a field... It didn't seem like too much of a crime to just hop over a, you know, loosely slung barbed wire fence, just sit there, cause no damage, uh, you know, uh, leave nothing behind except your footprints and your gratitude. And uh, that's how I got into it. And I guess I only started realising it was naughty 
uh, when people came up and pointed guns in my face and seemed, uh, by all accounts, to overreact to what I was doing. One of the things that you point out in the book is that, that, that there's not a clear distinction drawn between trespass on a kind of private woodland estate and like jumping into someone's back garden in a, a in a suburban town what do you think that there's a willful conflation of the idea of trespass in a sort of a domestic sense and in this sort of broader sense because I've been in that situation in fact when I first moved to the country I was just walking where there was a footpath I just diverted away from it and like I had a confrontation with the landowner and I remember feeling like like that, that, like you describe in the book, the sort of sense of entitlement, anger, sarcasm, weariness. Like, it, I felt pretty incensed, as a matter of fact, in some of the earlier confrontations. Also, I don't like getting into that idea that I'm having an argument. Like, I remember um, what Chris Morris once Chris Morris once saying, like that a lot of activism TV ends up being just bothering receptionists. <laughs> you know, like you don't want to just like the groundkeepers, like yeah. just at the, the or, or gamekeeper rather, it's just at the business end of it, and they're not real. You know, they've they got no power. But like, um, it's how because what one of the things I liked about the book was how you seemed to find it quite embarrassing and awkward. It's not like you were stridently with your chest puffed out marching into these confrontations. I like the way you describe it as being sort of embarrassing. So how do you handle it and how do you plan to continue handling it? Well, in terms of continuing handling it, I guess uh, me and my pal Guy Shrubsoul, who wrote a book called Who Owns England, are campaigning to stop the change the silly rule that makes out that by swimming in a river on a nice hot sunny day you're in some way aggressively harming uh whoever <laughs> uh whoever owns it uh i haven't walked in a field or in a woodland or swam in a river uh in in any time in my life in in specific order to get at the duke of wellington uh, except <laughs> But that's that's how the law of England defines it. The law, it, it resides under tort, uh, which is just means damage. It means harm. Uh, and it was created first to stop people doing harm. And then, uh, as the book tries to explain, as it, as it moved on from the Norman Conquest onwards, through the Tudors, who were, you know, particularly guilty of this, and then the Georgians, who were just about the worst, um, all of a sudden, just put in a toe, literally a toe over a line. And the line might be imaginary or it might be a brick wall or it might be barbed wire, uh, but turns the whole inclination of English law against you. Um, and people say, you know, I released the book and then on Twitter, just there was a whole sea of people just going, do you want me coming and crapping in your back garden? As if A, I have a back garden and B, uh, I mean, of course not. What a silly thing to say. Uh, but it's not their fault, like you say, like the gamekeepers. It's the way the law is contrived that it it, it fails to see the issues of scale uh, or, or really the context of what you're doing. Uh, and it kind of says that if I'm going for a swim in, uh, you know, the River Loddon, which is one of my favourite, owned by the Duke of Wellington, um, that in some way that's it just conflates that with me hopping over his wall while he's having a, you know, barbecue or a nice sit down. And... It's an invasion of privacy, but actually the question has to be how much land do you need uh, for your own privacy and and should the rest of the hundreds of thousands of other people that live around it be excluded just for your right to privacy? 
what's interesting one of the many things i found interesting about your book nick is that on one end it's very very local and simple the idea of the relationship we would have with land and our right to be on the land but I was about to ask you about what the intentions were of your campaign, you and your mate, whose name I'll memorize, who wrote um, Who Owns England? Like that, ha- that if you see, you can see, and you, of course, in your book, explain how that if you start pulling at these boundaries, examining them and crossing them, you can see why they're so closely scrutinized, um, rather why they're so closely observed is because under scrutiny it's revealed that they actually are connected to quite deep historic and and current power. Yeah and you know I guess it's the it's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is to sort of persuade people that he didn't exist like the the walls that we've become so used to in in Upper Basildon where I grew up there's a Sir Francis Sykes who uh, was such a bad dude that uh, uh, Charles Dickens named Bill Sykes after him in uh, Oliver Twist. And that's like, that's a bad person, Bill Sykes. Um, and he, uh, he he got all of his money through uh, East India colonialism. Uh, he um, brought it all the way back to my little, you know, just a little backwater village, Upper Basildon in um, Beautiful, but... Uh, He enclosed 400 acres of the land that was just previously where all the commoners, my ancestors, uh, would have just uh, taken their cows to pasture and kept their pigs and their bees and stuff, forced them all out, evicted the ones that were, you know, in cottages on there and um, used the money that he'd uh, basically gained illicitly through uh, bleeding India dry uh, to also go and, you know, divest the working class English of their land. And one of the biggest lies that I sort of realised when I was doing this Book of Trespass was that this sort of false enmity between uh, people of colour and uh, people who might consider themselves indigenous English. Actually, colonialisation was first practised on English soil to English working class people. The enclosures, which is what basically removed all of our rights to... Uh, the value or the wealth and the health of the land, uh, they were the they were practiced first on uh, you know in Upper Basildon say, uh, and and then um, and then that kind of paradigm was just uh, exported out to the Caribbean and um, really I don't see the issues as uh, black or white I see it as um, landed and those without land. Uh, and the real issue, of course, is that you don't, not everyone can own land, but it's the way that you define what ownership is. In England, unlike in Scotland or Norway or Estonia or Finland, the, you, you still can. They've still got counts and they've still got aristocracy and stuff, but their ownership of the land doesn't include their right to exclude every other person. Um, and for me, that was the kind of when the scales fell from my eyes. I didn't realise that England was uh, um, not unique in the world, but definitely kind of hard boiled in this old Norman conquest way of looking at, you know, what is mine? And, and in England, it's, it's, it's kind of only mine if it's definitely not yours. Um, and there's kind of a misanthropy to that, like far, far beyond the injustice and, uh, you know, um, the kind of social implications of it all. 
there's just a misanthropy. If you start looking at these walls for what they really are, it's walling out the commoners. Um, it's just not very nice. So that the objective of your campaign and sort of your ideals, as I understand them, is not like we should reclaim all privately owned land and make it once again common. It's rather that people should have the right to access walled off territories that have sort of been privately colonised. Well, one step at a time, I reckon. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, No, I think certainly in terms of uh, the Right to Roam campaign, uh, what we're looking to do is just open up more of English nature to the public that so badly need it. Uh, you know, the science is in, that conversation is done. Mental health, physical health, spiritual health, uh, have all been proved to be improved by access to nature and on all sorts of scales as well like you know a, a view from a mountaintop has been proved to make you kinder it's not just heart disease and uh, uh, you know symptoms of anxiety or depression that are alleviated through I don't know running water and uh, birdsong but just more kind of abstract or deeper ones like ones that really do touch on the spiritual um, so for our Right to Roam campaign, we're just saying we've already got the Countryside and Rights of Way Act brought in in the year 2000, 20th anniversary, uh, just a, a couple of months ago. Uh, we've already got that. Let's extend it to rivers. Let's extend it to woodland and let's extend it to Greenbelt because currently the crow land or the open access land is out in the Peak District or Derbyshire. It's great. It's beautiful. But it could be extended to people's doorsteps and uh, for the health of the nation and quote unquote Boris Johnson to alleviate the pressure on the NHS, both uh, in terms of psychiatric and kind of uh, physical health. This would be the single most effective move uh, to um, to just sort of promote a healthier England. You think that the sort of mental health crisis that is being exacerbated by this pandemic could be alleviated if there were immediate legislative change that gave people access to our land? People have been craving outside space. Like you take it away. Like I was first locked down. I was in a tower block in East London, 11th floor. It was just me and my mate doing kind of jujitsu moves in the foyer uh, in our pants, just like trying to sweat, trying to break a sweat, trying to keep our heart rate up. Um, all we had was a patch of uh, land on Columbia Road, like sort of a park uh, that was just rammed full of people. Uh, I'm a boater now and certainly during the first lockdown, uh, all the boaters were were actually quite scared because the towpaths were just heaving with people seeking exercise. Uh, Victoria Park was mental. Uh, and Bournemouth Beach made national news because everyone went crazy. The point that the papers almost obstinately refused to sort of <laughs> say uh, with regards to that is like how many rivers and fields and woodlands did people drive past to get to Bournemouth Beach? Like people like the seaside and everyone likes a sandcastle and stuff, but it's not in our culture uh, to go and sit by the river. It's not in our culture to um, uh, to just, you know, go and camp in the woods as a family. Uh, people do it, but people have to pay to do it, which basically means a lot of people can't do it. 
and so once again, this is how trespass enters the paradigm of class or, or income or wealth. Uh, if you know, bully for you if you've got uh, a thousand acres at your disposal that you can go and uh, sleep under the stars in. Uh, or good luck to you if you can afford, you know, an overnight stay in a sort of glamping spot, uh, you know, to go and get some forest bathing in a woodland kind of thing. It all costs money. Petrol, uh, childcare, if you're just going away, uh, you know, as a couple. All of this kind of thing doesn't have to, it just doesn't exist in Norway. Like, you have the option of glamping, but you also have the option of just taking a roll mat and sleeping under the stars because they just don't define it as a crime. Yes, to sort of criminalise our relationship with nature seems like, a, as you say, an obstinate and willfully cruel thing to do. I was thinking as you were speaking that these are the for you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, we've evolved in alignment with these conditions. We've, we're born of these conditions. It's only a relatively modern thing to be denied access to them. Elsewhere in the book, Nick, you talk about the kind of assumption that the, the, the countryside and Englishness belongs to particular types of people, that there are particular types of activity that are sanctioned by particular groups of people. How has this come about and how do we challenge these preconceptions? And can you explain a little bit what I'm alluding to? Yeah, I, I mean, what your question made me think of uh, uh, the hair chapter. All the, all the chapters have got animal names on them that kind of weave in and out. Uh, they're kind of the totems of each chapter. And um, the hair chapter was about basically about rave and the kind of ecstatic relationship uh, that we have with the land, you know, like... Uh, First time I heard Faithless out in, you know, first time I heard Insomnia uh, out in the open air at some festival, probably Reading kind of thing, under the stars. And then, you know, the bass dropped and everyone went stir fry crazy. And suddenly I'd, I'd felt it in clubs before, but it was a different thing. It was under the stars. Uh, um, there, there was a magic there that, that really made me feel like the kind of art and the culture and the music that humans make uh, actually has a place amongst uh, the wild world. Uh, and in many ways is our wildness. That's the kind of imagination that, that comes from it. But basically all of those old English festivals, Jacka Green, uh, Beltane, Sarwain, all of those kind of things, uh, there were there were just hundreds more of them they they were localized they were small they were relative to the topography to the land to the weather to the just weird queer eccentric culture that existed on the commons but of course and i go in the book to wilderness festival where there was a huge uh basically anarchist festival um people brought along a bit like um what is it burning man now like uh, you know you bring along what you've got and you sort of swap it and trade it. And uh, if you can juggle or fire breathe or, you know, whatever, you just do it and people hang around and watch kind of thing. That was the origin of festivals. Uh, but now in this same place, Cornbury Park in Oxfordshire, this is where wilderness uh, happens. And as I make, you know, I'm very careful to say that wilderness is a pretty good festival. There's bog roll in the toilets and it's clean and stuff, but... It is the apotheosis of um, 
what's become of our sort of festival uh, kind of pagan spirit, which is basically if you can afford it, you can do it. Um, and, you know, there's the sort of to add insult to injury. You can you can pay two grand to go to Wilderness Festival and stay in a gypsy caravan. But if you are a traveller <laughs> and you turn <laughs> up in a gypsy caravan, they're going to shit on you from a great height. So everything's become kind of commodified um it's you know the sort of romance is sold to you the idea that you can do it yourself autonomously uh has just disappeared and of course the people that are blamed for the diminishment of english culture uh are it's it's that myth of winterval that i go into in the book you know you blame immigrants for uh watering down english culture but the bare bog standard truth of it is that we're just not allowed to create our culture uh, if that culture is entertainment or coming together or uh, communality. There's nowhere for us to do it unless you've got the pennies in your pocket to give to someone that ha- that owns the t- title deeds of it. It makes me feel, Nick, that the wrath that fueled Brexit is indeed... Uh, is a a wrath that is legitimate, a rage, a sense that people have been disconnected from their land, from who they really are, robbed of sacredness. Uh, Even sacredness seems now too esoteric a word to describe what would have been an organic and visceral connection to nature. And yes, it's easy to see how appointed enemies bear the brunt of that fury because it's harder to well not only harder to recognize it's actively concealed that what's taken place is that capital has been inserted in all of these relationships i like the bit excuse me where you describe uh the sort of phenomena of like forest bathing or whatever even like something like you say in your book like a stroll in the woods has been repackaged to something that requires sort of the commodity to midwife it back to you I feel like that you're talking about like in like you described in the book as well how like like these the our heritage and the national trust pro- properties are obviously monuments to our colonial part or Britain's or England's colonial past and plundering of uh, like uh, India um, or other former colonized nations or places like and and I, I like how in this conversation you have said that colonization begins at home like charity like the the, the, the first people that colonized were you know the the, the surf class and the, the peasants and yeah i'm not promoting English. it i'm not saying you know like <laughs> before you go elsewhere study boy <laughs> make sure Have all you your not commons are colonized. colonizing here what's wrong with tyrannizing these people they're right there <laughs> yeah on your doorstep but like i was i once thought mate about like how you know uh how agriculture itself is a sort of an indication of the mindset of utility the land is to be uh the land is there for us to use animals are there as resources and i felt that much of uh patriarchy and misogyny uh, is embedded uh, is infused rather with that mindset the sort of dominion control control of 
females even as an agricultural resource that all things are there to breed to make to control and so this is when i started to feel that your book was at, at every level it, uh, deeply um, evocative of the need for spiritual change, cross boundaries, change the way we see things, change the way we see the land, change what our priorities are. It felt to me like a very, very radical piece of writing. Is that something that you were deliberately undertaking or as you began to write the book, did it sort of unfold somehow? Well, in a way, it's only other people that tell you how radical you are because you just sort of, uh, or, or how weird you are to the orthodoxy because uh, all I really did, you know, the start of the book, I didn't know anything about property uh, or uh, the law of rivers, riparian ownership or anything. But I just had a sense that it wasn't okay. It didn't seem all right. And I sort of asked mates of mine and no one really knew. Everyone's trespassed. Of course we have. Everyone's done it. Everyone's scrumped. Everyone, you know, like we have a relationship to the land in spite of what they tell us where we can or can't go but yet there's this orthodoxy that uh if you're caught you've got to be ever so middle class and ever so white about it and like i'm typically telling you sorry and and you have to sort of take your hat off and and hold it down and and, and you have to act like you've done something morally wrong uh and it occurred to me you know it's easy for me to get uh caught because i am white and i am middle class and uh the the kind of the system itself isn't jacked against me uh but actually in terms of property if if you if you get caught on these places it it's so deeply embedded in you that you're you're not allowed to be there yeah and knew that i had to and and, and once you've finished reading your john locke discourse on property once you've finished reading your hugo grotius and your samuel puffendorf and all of these obscure william blackstone these sort of guys that uh, were writing for their patrons, for the people that were giving them money, who were landowners, who specifically needed their one element of their land to be justified. And now the whole sort of heft of English law relies on these writings. And you're just like, this is a scam. This is not, this is not cool. And And everyone has kind of it's embedded. It's kind of Orwellian now. It's it's you, you, you don't need to teach people that they don't belong on the land. Uh, you know, the work there has already been done. Our job as a campaigning thing is to, is to tell people that that natural love you have for um, uh, nature, it, it is not wrong. You know, it, it's cool to to be who you are, to love birds and stuff. Uh, and also, very specifically, uh, make make sort of overtures or you know sort of actively step towards communities that uh, uh, have been ignored by English countryside culture for so long uh, because as I was sort of alluding to just before like th there are people that just really feel they don't belong people that feel like they're being stared at for the color of their skin or their accent or the way that they're dressed uh, or the van that they've turned up in uh, you know, who really don't belong to this kind of orthodoxy. But as I was trying to say in the book about the commons, I, I really believe that there is uh, an, an England that is older than the England that has been kind of branded and defined by the landowning uh, class, uh, by the colonialists, by the um, capitalists. 
Uh, and, and I really think that the commons uh, were places uh, where queerness was celebrated, where eccentricity was just the done thing. And, and the perfect analogy for all of that is monoculture, agriculture, you know, the weeds and the knowledge of the weeds. Uh, people that knew about weeds were, were turned into witches. They were, you know, whereas in the commons, they were sages. They were uh, people that you went to for kind of psycho-spiritual health. They, they all got wiped out, whether they were hanged or whether they were uh, just kind of tabooed out of society. Um, similarly, yeah. that kind of weirdness of Englishness that we kind of still celebrate in Monty Python and uh, definitely Mackenzie Crook's new Wurzel Gummidge, which for me holds the key to that that sort of dream England that kind of references the old but embraces everything that is... I don't know if you've seen it, Russell. For me, it's heaven sent. Everyone, yeah, I, I've not watched his one yet, but I will because oh. I loved Wurzel Gummidge when I was a kid, and like I, I love Mackenzie Crook, he's brilliant. So yeah, I'll check it. But what is it then? Sort of bucolic beauty and eccentricity. Yeah, but also animist, pagan. He talks to the crows. He's got a robin that's his best mate. Uh, it's um, Michael Palin's The Green Man. Okay. Uh, the most recent, you know, but he's also a sort of doddery old hedge layer that thinks no one can see him. Uh, it's, it's to me what the English Commons really is, is, is whimsy. And there's something about authority that really doesn't know how to react to whimsy. That's interesting. Um, it's interesting that you say that because, uh, like this idea of, uh, trickster, there's a lot in, in sort of, um, what I know of sort of, you know, I know that, so that, so that you touch on these kind of mythic themes in your book, but, it, um, like uh, m some of the depictions of Krishna focus on his, uh, the trickster component and that he confronts sort of e evil through play and dance, you know, resist not evil in a kind of Christian sense, in a kind of a playful way, rather than sort of trying to meet that authority where it's at. I like this allusion that you make to Arcadia, to Albion, to sort of like an idyllic England that pre dates these centrifugal forces that bring with them necessarily a kind of gravitational monotheism and a, a monoculture it kind of makes sense doesn't it even from a sort of um an, a quick rational reflection that if if power is diffuse it affords queerness and whimsy and oddness but once you have a central tent pole culture as you uh, excellently describe in your chapter about wilderness and and its lineage of ownership right there to live nation who i personally certainly won't criticize due to my line of work and professional relationships <laughs> Some, well they're you know, huge like... aren't they they're the kind of <laughs> sony coca-cola whatever of uh, of entertainment it says on their website there's a live nation event once every 18 seconds in the world or something like uh, in some ways that's something to celebrate certainly for the shareholders but uh it sounds rather ways, exhausting yeah <laughs> it's not the same guy i don't think <laughs> it would have to be eddie izzard yeah I think that's the only person that could possibly pull off a gig every 18 seconds <laughs> um, the duracell buddy of entertainment Stop eddie me. izzard beautiful human being Look, this is what I liked again and again is the way that, like, look, I, I, the reason I love David Foster Wallace is because, like, he's able to start with, a, like, a macro point and return to minutiae and be very personal and then be sort of broader. And I feel that you 
pulled off a, not let's call it a trick you had there's a similar your book is an achievement that ranks alongside that because you're able to use your experience at the jungle in Calais to make a comparison f- with Britain's colonial past with the idea of transgression even in the mind and one of the themes that interests me most at the moment Nick is how do we galvanize and bring together these diffuse communities whose interests actually naturally align you'd have, but might find themselves on opposite ends of a brexit or pronoun argument by virtue of the way that the cultural landscape is being divided this is why this strikes me as an interesting issue because it is universal it does affect all of us if 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 we could draw people's attention to the idea of this is your land you can change your relationship with the land this will affect your mental health this will affect your spirit this affects this is what england like england of course is a, a an abstract notion a concept a story a poem but it also is some dirt with some grass and trees and animals on it and that bit of it's been sort of yeah foreclosed hidden well, I would, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Brexit is so, such a huge, uh, I was thinking today about David Cameron's, just when he announced Brexit or that he was retiring and he sort of went, tum to tum to tum and he said, right, what's next? And that was like the end or, or the start of the disaster kind of thing. And it was just so quaint. Um, and so Brexit's huge. But there's definitely what I'm reading about at the moment is uh, the the ability of um, just common ground to basically where someone doesn't have uh, a right uh, to uh, or, or an authority over anyone else, uh, whether it be a right of ownership or a sense of localism or whatever. On common ground, when you meet another person, you are meeting as equal as you yeah. possibly can be. And I mention in the book, that's easy to say for a white dude to uh, talk about, you know, meeting someone on a level because there's so many other systemic uh, kind of weights at play that are dragging people down or, or pushing people up. But um, I met last time I was on the uh, river, I met a fisherman who kind of like within, you know, hello, hello. And then he was like, you're all Black Lives Matter, aren't you? You're all Jeremy Corbyn. You're all snowflake this kind of thing. And basically... What had you done? What had I done? I've just got like a hipster beard and a a silly (laughs) jumper. I don't know. (laughs) I just look the sort. (laughs) Uh, He was right. You know, he called me. Um, But the thing is, because it was a nice day and because I wasn't moving and because he was sat, you know, sort of welded to his fishing rod... Uh, there was a way that we could kind of talk it through, uh, and and there was no there was no real sign of uh, in in nature whose space it was more. It wasn't like a kind of hipster East London bar where the Daily Mail would be outlawed, nor was it kind of uh, you know um, a kind of local with uh, with uh, Saint George's flags on it where you know like sort of daily mail might be more uh, more common and so we were able to talk in a way that we could disagree but also be civil and civil isn't this kind of like you know quaint victorian let's have tea and not offend the vicar kind of stuff it's like a 
it, it's respecting that other people have come to these opinions because of a sort of increment of uh, of different experiences or, uh, you know, stuff that they've read or stuff that they've experienced. And to actually ability to share that uh, was really interesting um, and really cool. We both parted like, you know, we didn't feel obliged to sort of set our flag and hammer it in and, and then demand that the other one bow to it kind of thing. And there was something, I thought, as I paddled off, something about it just being our because we were just it was a nice summer's day and there was no that we, we were both enjoying that uh and and not neither one of us had more power to exclude the other so we were meeting on common ground and we were able that in itself i guess i'm saying allowed us to have a more level conversation that's interesting because I, I suppose as we more and more occupy virtual spaces, abstract spaces, and are deracinated, that we may find ourselves more likely to be confrontational. I was mindful then when you were talking, mate, that you know, 10, 20 years ago, I would have assumed that when you're saying that um, we don't extend much civility with people with opposing views, that we were assuming that that's how the right treat the left. But now I think it's quite you know that certainly the reverse is also equally if not more true that there's a you know gammon brexit voting like you know that and perhaps you're right perhaps what you're identifying in the, the sort in the significance of our fundamental relationship with the land is that by providing people with again a kind of inherent sense of place and connection to where they are from and their right to be who they are where they are that it might license us to communicate without so much fear and without so much uh, an incentive to plunder even with discourse well i hope so (laughs) (laughs) i recognize that wasn't a question some sounds but but the thing is there's also so much that i don't understand about the dynamics that i mean specifically this guy was telling me his his problem with uh people uh as he would say it like shoving black lives matter down his throat uh, was basically it was just a load of sort of white middle class people like me coming at him from our you know nice two you know two bedrooms or sort of our, our nice flats or whatever in Islington was whatever he characterized me as coming at him telling him you know and he grew up in Tilehurst with that I grew up for a bit in Tilehurst there's not a telephone box that hasn't had its telephone bashed in and it's all you know all the shops are shut and and, and you get all these la-di-da middle class coming up and trying to tell him that he's privileged. Uh, and actually the the sort of complexity of systemic privilege and inequality sort of, and, and the sort of wealth of England that sort of rested upon historical colonial uh, exploits, like none of that had sort of been spelt out or I, I was privileged to have, essentially being taught some of it and then being given a lifestyle where books weren't you, you know weren't like a, a, a kind of excess they were just kind of part of the fabric of our growing up I, I realized that his problem was not with people of color but with uh, the sort of people like me going on at him telling him how privileged he was and and face to face with him having a chat with him looking in his eyes like uh, I, I, of course I could empathize with that and you've got to, you know, you've got to be there with people. Like, this one of the thing about COVID. There's 
we've missed nature but we've also missed like each other's space like being in each other's presence because there's so much you can learn from that and zoom ain't a patch on it (laughs) no and it's like there is no there now there is no there and and i think that's one of the ideas that you're sort of describing beautifully in your book i'm minded then of um dia khan the activist and filmmaker who came on here who's herself a muslim woman i think she's norwegian i can't remember but anyway she's done stuff with um like various white supremacist groups and she says that when in personal conversation like people can't sort of keep the old racism up you know they're sort of stuck and yeah but not you though but you know like it's, it's sort of melts and i suppose it's because we we've lost our context we've lost our humanity because you know space has been corporatized our psyche is corporatized like you said well-being and spirituality corporatized everything mediated by these everything has become transactional and it's difficult for us to imagine a culture where there are local festivals that refer to our own practices and our own feelings that we are integrally related to along with a community and how that community might be defined there's this placelessness i think and so that's why i think you know like i i root for your book a a, a great deal i don't even know when you wrote it mate i guess it's like a year ago or so huh? but like it's amazing i think it's amazing um another thing um thank you um my wife done this um thing for uh Grenfell where she they got one of her friends was doing stuff and they got her to paint she's an artist and they got her to paint like a window like in this play center that they were using after the you know Grenfell and like um she said that one of the she my wife painted like a like I'm privileged to live uh, near the river and like she painted like this sort of riverscape from not far from where we live and like she said that she heard one of the children saying, looking at this sort of all these reeds and trees and birds that my wife had painted onto the glass, this little kid went, God, imagine if there was a place in the world that was like this. You know, the the window, by the way, looked onto like this sort of a, an A40 flyover or something yeah. like that. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And for for a little while there, like always when I have these sort of encounters, experiences, even if they're just reported to me, I thought, fuck, I've got to do something. I've got to do something like without it bearing that that sort of the burden or lacquer of that um, like sort of the guilt derived gesture like that. What you know, that, 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 that so when it comes down to your kind of right to roam thing. Because one of the things we've just started doing is that I do like Zoom calls and I charge people five quid and then I give the money to a, a charity. So we'll do one of whatever your cause is, Nick. Would your would your cause be right to Rome then? Yeah, mate. Yeah, we'll we'll have you whatever you've got. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I was hoping. I don't know if we'll get round to it, but uh, I don't know if you've got to the uh, bit in the book where I go on about. Um, I basically meet Richard Benyon, who's one of your uh dastardly enemies isn't he you did a little thing with benyon and i, I think i mentioned it in the book but... i was i was enjoying your book immensely and then <laughs> to top it all i was in it if there's anything that'll improve my experience of reading a book is seeing my name this now we're talking uh, now yeah, we've got yeah, a yeah, book yeah, in yeah. our hands i'm in it yeah tell <laughs> that. of course yeah my um dalliances with my uh momentary bete noir uh, mp richard benyon was when i was um involved in some campaigning for the new era estate which was near where i lived at the time and i'm guessing relatively near where you live to this day which was a sort of a perfect campaign in loads of ways um like and let me be blunt because they were incredibly
incredible, mostly white working class. Uh, is this our house? Or like women. And I'm like. Not on uh, fire. <laughs> is it, something's burning. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but anyway, like when I got involved with those women, they asked me to help them with their campaign. It's fantastic and cool. And like it, they were super telegenic and lucid and brilliant on the tele. The campaign really got legs, you know. And like I remember we did like a march to Downing Street and thousands and thousands of people came. It was mental. And like so I was like, but I, I know that they like eventually Dolphin Estates, I think, bought that you know bought that estate and i guess what was going to happen happened because that's the way the world operates but there was a brief reprieve and hiatus and it really made me feel for a moment oh my god you can do something of course you know of course of course i had to get past the narcissism of thinking that it was my own involvement and once i did get past that and recognize that when there's an infrastructure in place and an, a sort of an ongoing sense of community and cohesion and support within a group that all sorts of incredible things can be achieved and i'm sure that's what activists like you know the green and common activists about whom you write elsewhere in your book and activists for time immemorial uh, or, or you know even before they bore that name have realized that through the cohesion of community that, that all sorts can be achieved but I, I was fascinated to read that um, Richard Bentian bore the scars of that encounter still and you said that he spoke about it quite a lot when you went to hassle him about his estate that's true is it he was like yeah you you, you look like Russell Brand you look like one of those East London whatnots you know <laughs> just tell Russ sorry sorry it couldn't be done this time like the the thing is though you say I mean so what I did I because there's like a small rule uh, that I found that if you uh, basically if you own a second home you're allowed to re-register your voting address uh, to, uh, to whichever one you want so I wanted to speak to a landowner so I my parents still live in the house that I grew up in in this village and they are the constituents or were when he was uh, MP. Uh, of Richard Bennion. So I asked them and I re-registered the address uh, and I just, and this cheeky, and I did ethically, I didn't really know, but th I'd written him letters. There wasn't a hope in hell that he was going to even engage with the notion that the exclusive ownership of uh, 12,000 acres of West Berkshire uh, was not fair. There's no, I mean, there's no good reason why he'd want to engage with that. Um, so I basically went along to his MP's surgery and sat there and just, uh, for 15 minutes in kind of like a little police interview room, kind of just a little cubby hole off the side of the office in Newbury. And I was, yeah, I was nervous because I'd never, you know, you, you read about these people and I'd done all the reading on him. It, it almost felt a bit sort of serial killer kind of, uh, you know, I had articles up on my wall kind of thing and like... I had sort of studied the man and, and wanted to know a, a bit about his history and all of that. Um, and then meeting him, people come with a kind of charisma or a gravitas or something. And, and also he, before Rishi Sunak, he was the richest MP in Parliament. I'd never met a landowner or someone that was really, really rich. And I didn't really know what kind of power he had in this modern day in the old days he could probably he'd have yeah had the crows pecking my eyes out kind of thing but I knew that wasn't likely to happen this time so I didn't really know what could happen but he just he, he, there's this sort of paternalism that uh that it's what Boris Johnson said about uh XR that they were being uncooperative crusties uh because uh, yeah and it's like, come on, mate, there's more There's more to it than that. Uh, but it is, you know, it's that old adage, at first they ignore you, etc., etc. It's 
it, it's much more easy to, to just brush aside. Don't be so unreasonable. There's plenty of uh, rights of way in England. There's plenty of rivers that you can paddle on uh, or go swimming in. Uh, and when you sort of give them the evidence statistics that there's only 3% of English rivers that you are allowed uh, legally to swim in or to paddle on kind of thing, then there's this sense that you're just trying to cause trouble. Don't just be a good chap and uh, and just go with it, can't you? And and this book then suddenly, or the book of trespass suddenly, I suddenly realised that we've been dismissed, especially with trespassing. Like we are causing trouble because we want to continue walking in the woods that were that our ancestors walked in, uh, but they were fenced off in the eighteen hundreds or even. Even just during last lockdown, the Duke of Buccleuch, there was a, a whole woods in uh, Nottinghamshire. Just someone, when we launched the campaign, got in touch and said, yeah, we walked every day in these uh, woods, and now, because they own them, uh, they're cutting them down and putting three warehouses on them. Uh, and so we can't... It's all over, though. Someone... that We've, we've had loads of people just getting in touch with what we're going to... We're going to do a little series of it, like Modern Enclosure... You know, we used to walk uh, in Froome by the river and uh, now there's a housing estate. They've just blocked it up and, uh, you know, said we don't have access to the riverbank anymore. Enclosure is not like something that happened 200 years ago. It's happening every day currently. Uh, and, and even though it feels like there's no more nature to fence off, they're still doing it. And they've even taken it into the cities now and you've got your privately owned public spaces is why Occupy got chuck, chucked off uh, from outside St. Paul's, even though uh, the cool-ass dean was like, no, let them stay. The dean didn't have any uh, sway over it because Mitsubishi Enterprises owned the land. So they were able to silence uh, the protest at the 90, you know, the 99% protesting at the inequalities uh, laid on by the 1%. Uh, just simply because the people that were protesting didn't own the land, compared to their protest and the sort of the 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 points they were making, whoever owned the land is kind of irrelevant. But it's really not, and that's how HS two protesters are being chucked off. Uh, that's exactly how the Sheffield Tree protesters were being chucked off. Um, but actually, the book, having said all of that, like the book is full of examples of collective direct action uh, created by people with basically no experience of uh, protest or don't necessarily self-identify as kind of aggy protesters. Time and time again, success after success after success. Um, the problem is a mate of mine, Paul Pounsland, that set up uh, Lawyers for Nature, who um, he's, he's a lawyer and he's trying to... Um, uh, he's basically campaigning and, and sort of working towards giving trees what's called legal standing and rivers legal standing whereby they have uh, the rights of an entity uh, like some would call it human rights or whatever. Um, that's that's his sort of he doesn't even get paid for that. That's him and a mate John set that up. Uh, but what they're also doing is defending the Sheffield Tree protesters and the HS2 protesters and stuff. They're just this amazing, Lawyers for Nature, amazing uh, organisation. But the problem is, like, rather than being able to dedicate their time to advancing uh, the rights of rivers and trees, 
they have to spend most of their time stopping the destruction of trees. So protest seems to be, you have these big ideological, like we could do this, let's all gather together to do this. But first of all, you've got to, um, they just chucked, they just chopped down in Islington, the happy man tree, uh, which was tree of the year, 2020. Uh, and then to cap it, first day of lockdown, they chopped it down. So it was tree of the year for a whole year. And then when that year was ended, they just took a saw to it, basically. Uh, and Paul was central to the campaign to try and stop that. But it's just an example of how you want to protest and campaign to take society forward. But actually, a lot of the time, you're impeded by the constant uh, need to take it backwards. So you have to stop that. You have to fight that fire first. And then if you've got the energy or the time, carry on. It seems like it would be the kind of subject that might draw interest from a very uh, a previously disparate set of uh, individuals and groups because, you know, sort of conservation is literally a conservative issue. Ecology is generally regarded as a sort of progressive leftist issue. And it feels like, uh, yeah, it's something that could really bring a lot of people together. And, uh, yeah, that is very, very frustrating, particularly the sort of ritualistic uh removal of tree of the year the very second that its day in the sun was <laughs> over sort of brutal sacrifice to have so so horrible it it makes me giggle i don't know <laughs> it's so bad yeah it's a wonder they did it but that's there <laughs> it's too it's like yes as you say it's a kind of satirical so um that right to Rome, that, what, tell me what that is, please. And also, will you tell me just again those brass tax statistics? Something like, because when I found myself saying it to my father-in-law the other day, uh, I felt like I might be wrong and I got nervous. Like like 93% of the land is like in excess. Is that true? And 97% of rivers, what are them stats? And then what is right to Rome? And what are the intentions of right to Rome? Yeah, um, at the moment, under the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, uh, like we have the right to Rome, uh, which is basically wander freely off path over um eight percent of land that's sort of mainly the derby dales and the moorland kind of thing but little patches all over uh england um uh and with regards to rivers like rivers is the tightest uh sort of nest of legislation uh because it's very very hard uh to sort of get a grip of the ownership of a river therefore uh as it stands, we're, we're, we're allowed only access to 3% of rivers, and uh, that's via a sort of ancient, various ancient acts of parliament. Uh, and all that means is really, if you're caught on any other land, um, that the owner has the right to uh, throw you off, and if you resist uh, that right to be thrown off, then they'll call, call the police, uh, and then you'll get done for breach of the peace, peace or something. Um so the the situation that, that that's the situation in england we've got 92 percent of the land that we're not uh um allowed to roam over do, what Scotland, are you doing what are you defining that land as mate is that all of england or is that like the country how is that what is the term no yeah that? it's it's all of england so about you can only four, go eight percent of england <laughs> but four four or five percent of england is housing and gardens right um you know we're not huh. like take that off we don't want that kind of thing keep but, that yeah have it <laughs> like uh 
but the rest of it, for example, in Scotland, which uh, since 2003, they did a, had a Land Reform Act, uh, and that opened up uh, all of Scotland to the right of what they call it, the right to responsible roaming. So as long as you uh, exercise your responsibility, both to the, the communities on that land, but also to the ecology of that land, you don't litter, you leave the gates as you found and you keep your dogs on a leash, uh, you know, uh, you avoid ground nesting birds. There's a whole list of uh, a code that Scottish people have essentially through experience just ingrained within them they they understand how to act in the country because they've been given the right to exercise uh, those responsibilities um with very specific uh, uh exceptions so you you're not allowed to roam across uh primary schools or uh religious <laughs> monuments or you know all of these make sense but and common they, they, sense and pre-existing laws that don't set fire to things while yeah. you're roaming on them <laughs> but also uh crucially in Scotland and Norway and Estonia and Finland uh Sweden uh, the right to roam also extends to uh, the right to swim, uh, the right to paddle, the right to forage, and crucially, the, the right to wild camp, which in England just seems uh, so far away that we should have. Uh, only in, um, is it Dartmoor, is the only place that we have a right to take a tent and spend the night, uh, no more than two nights. Um, and, and that, even more than anything, like the ability to go to sleep uh, when it's dark, which if you're camping, you realise it comes quite early and there's basically bugger all else you can do but just get an early night's sleep. And then wake up at dawn and the dawn chorus and really that sense that you really belong in that place. Like when, when I walk back to places that I've camped, you, it feels like home. It feels And it doesn't feel like home like I can tell everyone else to bugger off. just feels like me in that spot uh are connected in some way and i care about it um so in scotland all of this stuff is uh it's not just allowed it's kind of actively encouraged because they see uh the mental and physical health benefits um and it changes the uh it changes the the kind of mindset of a nation like uh lots of people in norway talk about uh um, this sense that children are, if, if you give all people the right to uh, autonomous exploration, uh, you're really giving people the right to work out their own limits and work out what they can and can't do. Uh, you're teaching them a responsibility. So, you know, there's lots of stories of, you know, children running wild, kind of, uh, you know, jumping off waterfalls or um, that kind of, you, you know, sort of maybe risking their own, uh, health and safety a little bit but but actually why not like we've been infantilized uh, by a, a sort of centuries of laws that are telling us that you can't do that and this is for your own good but essentially this is for our own good uh, don't do that don't light a fire in Scotland you're as long as you're responsible and as long as there's under very very specific uh, conditions which are essentially there to safeguard the fact that there will be a forest tomorrow morning once you've done your fire uh, as long as you put it out where's the harm yeah um, and actually that that changes people's relationship with nature and their relationship to each other and themselves you know you you, you feel like 
you you take some autonomous responsibility for your actions in the world i feel like that where's the harm is the kind of phrase that is an accompaniment to the right to roam and it's something that occurs to me when i'm walking about like and i sort of see i see this fence the other day in i guess it's buckinghamshire and like there there was a great glorious avenue of trees but it wasn't a road it was like lawn grass right down the middle of it and like going into a valley around like the Chilterns and stuff I thought oh well, I want to go in there why can't I <laughs> you know like all I want to do is walk about in it and like and there is lots of places where I go on f- public footpaths I walk my dog and then it's sort of like you say with a presumptive sign that just goes no not this way that way I think why not I want to go over there for a little bit and like in a in a way it's sort of you can't have the assumption that everyone's there to behave criminally and criminal behavior is its own separate thing like if someone vandalizes uh, litters fly tips chops down sets fire to there's already laws for that you can't operate on the assumption of dispossession that can't be the baseline you can see the sort of the is it sort of like the normative values that the, the norm is you aren't allowed and then we can negotiate and it's permission permission that you're granted rather than a right that you are born with you know i think it's, it's so many important values are embedded uh, are, are brought up with the with the issues that you write about and i was very uh, excited by the range of it as well like like the, you know talking about the wilderness festival the jungle out there in calais talking about uh, you know history colonization it's current like the in the case of that dude to that other mp that had the wall that still you know like still had this i've got no connections to that slave plantation at all i visit every Every year, of course I do. But aside from my annual visits to my former slave plantation, I have no connection whatsoever. Yeah, he's uh, he's not done too well out of it, MP Richard Drax. He's uh, he's been forced to because um, another uh, a journalist uh, did a quite a large expose of him uh, only a couple of weeks ago, and now he's been forced to declare uh, his uh, Caribbean plantations in his uh, you know annual report to MPs, kind of thing. So. Poor old Dickie Drax is, uh, <laughs> and incidentally, Drax uh, was another uh, uh, sort of um, film villain. Uh, I think he's off Moonraker. Uh, Ian Fleming <laughs> named uh, all of these people were known as bastards back then, uh, <laughs> and they're still, it's you know, they're kids at that. But can <laughs> I can I say there's what's crucial for us is is this sense that. Um, the public are cast as vandals and the public are cast as litterers, which you can't deny that lockdown brought a load of uh, litter uh, to, you know, natural beauty spots and stuff. Um, But there's also an an awful lot of evidence of how, uh, you know, volunteer litter picking, uh, uh, Paul Powsland of Lawyers for Nature runs uh, uh, the River Roading Trust. River Roading runs through the east of London, uh, kind of largely forgotten about river, but people meet every week to clear it up mainly because they love just being in waders in a river doing mm. something good for the environment. But on a wider scale, like the science has shown, like it's that old, I think it was Michael Pyle, a scientist from America, said, uh, you know, what is the extinction of a condor to a child that has never known the wren? Uh, mm. and, and without actually a visceral. Uh, from early years, an embedded uh, connection with the wonder of nature and the kind of, you know, the sort of daily miracles that happen when a wren just plops in front of you or a kingfisher zips 
there without that kind of known felt visceral connection to nature you're asking us to care about the environment and the climate uh, as really a sort of abstract idea uh, that we don't really have a sense of Uh, and the science it was on the BBC a couple of um, on their website a couple of months ago uh, basically saying people that have been uh, shown to uh, sort of have a connection with nature uh, you know, recycle more, take fewer flights, uh, you know, sign all the Avaz petitions. And like, once you have a sense of your local, uh, the importance of your local nature, you realise more more empathetically, maybe, how, uh, how the sort of much wider scale of destruction, how terrible, how terrible that would be. So people can only care about nature through a personal connection with it. This resonance that you describe, i.e., that the you know a mount like a mountain view makes you more compassionate. These things cannot be coincidental. These things are that we are them. We have evolved in harmony with them, and and to be separate from nature is to be separate from our our own nature. And yeah, thanks, man. You've made that real clear. Do you think the pandemic could offer an opportunity to change property laws and challenge land ownership, e.g., housing the homeless in hotels? E.g. housing the homeless in hotels. You better explain that to me, Jen. Jen, come No, in no, that happened. What's his name? The footballers uh, opened their hotel in Manchester. Oh, I yeah, can't yeah. remember their names. I Gary don't know. Neville. Gary Neville. Good lad. Um, yes. Oh, right. You, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is what Jen's saying. I get it. If you can all of a sudden, because there's a pandemic, stick homeless people in hotels, why can't we make other changes? Like, let's open up the land. It's obviously good for people's mental health. We'll also, you know, pay people to do the sort of the clearing up the litter as well. That's obviously going to create some more jobs. <laughs> well, litter we've got an answer for, but, like, that's, uh, you know, there's a surface against sewage, trash-free trails. There are organised, uh, excellent organisations that are already coordinating volunteers to to just clean up the oceans uh so so in terms of litter i don't think you even need to pay people it's also been proven that picking up litter improves your mental health just the literal picking up of a whisper gold wrapper makes you happy uh so all of that's going to be fine but can lockdown change our relationship to nature yes of course it can but it depends um because also the recession that's coming, this devastating recession that we don't even have the kind of mental capacity to consider at the moment because, you know, it's lockdown three in England. Um, people are people are not going to be flying. People are going to be needing, you know, their holidays. They're going to be needing it in England. Uh, they won't be able to afford it. They'll be scared of, you know, the sort of COVID future that there is going to be an enormous amount of pressure on what are called the beauty spots of England. Uh, so it might even be a practical uh, solution uh, for a sort of uh, practically minded government. Uh, maybe one will come along next time. But um, that, that actually there's so much of this land that is hidden behind brick walls in England. Why can't we just give people the right to responsibly access it uh, and let the people that own it just carry on owning it. Thank you. Is the commercialization of wellness and the natural world being amplified and abused during the pandemic? There's there's definitely a brand uh, that has been created for English nature. 
and that brand is largely associated with um, kind of mindfulness books or uh, consumer products, uh, but also, you know, on the blacks or the, the kind of North Face adverts, there's a, English nature really seems to be, from all the photographs, for kind of well-to-do white middle-class people in their late 30s who were probably taking their kids for a walk. Um, there, there is so much more to be done in nature. There's so much more uh, fun to be had than this kind of staid image. Uh, but again, this is, this is how nature is um, sold to us uh, because from the Georgian era, uh, every aspect of the property that you owned was divided up and called its perquisite um, which could then be rated, rented or sold as a separate entity. So whether that's the fishing rights uh, or, you know, the hunting rights. But these days, uh, as we were talking earlier about forest bathing, uh, landowners can now sell people the right to uh, be bathed in the essential oils of trees because that's been proved to raise your immune system for uh, up to 30 days afterwards. How can it be right uh, to sell people that? It's only because they own it, and by virtue of their ownership, um, they can exclude us. It's like the commodification is simultaneously banalizing it. You know, it, like it becomes anodyne as it's commodified. You lose the wildness of nature. Adam Curtis talks about like sort of how, it, like in the Romantic era, nature was wild and dangerous and frightening, and now nature is help nature's gonna break yeah. <laughs> like, like and it's sort of like a ref he says it's a reflection of our character and our our fears i suppose yeah there, uh, there is objective nature and then there's our psychic projection and interpretation of nature which is why the book ends with uh Hearn the hunter who is uh did like did you say you're around buckinghamshire next yes woods, like yes. near windsor Yes, that's uh, it. That you can't get to that, can you? I've gone by river past that. There's that whole massive oh, bit that's part of the yeah. Windsor Estate, isn't it? And the uh, the Hearn Oak, dedicated to the greatest pagan deity of Berkshire, uh, <laughs> is um, yeah, is in there. Uh, and it used to be a sort of uh, a, a, of great renown, and people would come all over. It used to be a public park uh, just behind Windsor Castle. But this Hearn the Hunter chap is a big hero of mine. Like he is, he's sort of Bacchus. He's the green man. He's uh, the god of kind of, not just fertility, but of just wildness, of unboundness. And he's profoundly terrifying to people that are just obsessed with uh, mown lawns and uh, monoculture uh, and, and everything being in its right place. Mm. Um, uh, and actually that's been given quite a pejorative this sense that everything doesn't have to be in its right place the questioning of who's right place and why um it's not actually a bad thing and uh uh it doesn't mean chaos and disorder in its in in its sort of negative sense it kind of means let things thrive autonomously allow people space to be themselves and allow nature room to breathe uh, but all of that's you know it's it's it, it's all been quashed under the uh under the edict of one man essentially and that would be the person that that owned the land thanks has the importance placed on border control during the pandemic heightened the feeling of ownership over our land has it empowered us or has it exposed the fault lines in the myth of freedom 
well, Ben Jennings did a really good cartoon uh, in The Guardian, I think, where uh, there was a, a maybe a Syrian family in a uh, in a rescue boat uh, just crossing the channel uh, right at the bow of an enormous English warship. And it was kind of like, mummy, I thought we'd escaped the war zone kind of thing. And, and here we are welcoming people in desperate need with gunships. Which, incidentally, is precisely what Katie Hopkins uh, got sacked wow. uh, from the... I've just realised that. Bloody hell. But uh, She was ahead know, of her time. She was a visionary. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I think uh, people... I think, the, I think Paul Dacre's more to blame uh, than Pretty Patel uh, for that kind of stuff. I don't think people... People see the gunships uh, of recent times uh, due to the pandemic, uh, but um, the the borders are created in people's minds long before uh, they're created in law, and then long before they're defended by military kind of thing, uh, and it serves people like Paul Dacre. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to go. So yeah, we've we've mentioned names, aren't we? There's not a legal. I, I really do hold him responsible, and his sort of Middle England mindset that there is the right kind of person that constitutes Englishness. Like, you know, it's going to be a horrible wake-up call for him uh, when the commons are reclaimed. And uh, and as the, the Testament play, Black Men Walking, uh, says so well, you know, that there have always been people of colour in Englishness, uh, you know, right from the Cheddar Man onwards, right from uh, the Roman emperors, right, you know, right through Georgians, uh, that there is... Um, there is colour and variety and queerness uh, written and, and sort of multinationality written into Englishness. Uh, and it's people like Paul Dacre that, for, like, that really need other people to forget that. Um, and that's why I don't blame... Like, people have been taught, uh, taught otherwise. People have been lied to, uh, taught ignorance in schools. You know, I wasn't... I was taught about William Wilberforce. I certainly wasn't taught about the the slave ship the zong or uh you know the carib communities or the maroon communities that resisted uh um english occupation uh, i wasn't taught about that like it happened uh but why wasn't i taught about that and so so it's not you know i had to read eric williams to find out about that um mm. but those are the that's the kind of context that needs to be taught in schools otherwise people uh, will end up believing in English exceptionalism. Of course they will, because that's all the evidence they've been given. Yes. Hey, perhaps um, me and you should do a trespass, like, uh, together. Do you want to go to Home Park? It's local for you. I could nip on the train. <laughs> well, which is which one's Home Park? That's the one where you get a year in prison if you're caught on it with Bloody hell, the mate. hunter. Come on. I can't the do a hard way... time. Look at me. <laughs> I'm sure someone would take care of you, take you under their wing. <laughs> I don't want to be under a wing. It's clammy under there. It is clammy. I want my own safe. nest. <laughs> yeah, fair. Good on you. So what's um, like, which park is it then? It's Home Park. It's the, it's the backyard of Windsor Castle, and it used to be a public park. Uh, right up until uh, Prince Albert didn't want anyone uh, spying on him going swimming naked. Because the of the tent. piercings? Well, did he have a piercing? Didn't he? It's, I really tried. I had a really good line, a little funny line that I was going to write about that, but then I had to research whether he did have it. And oh, then I that's just got a shame. Bored. Yeah, I just got bored. Didn't, it wasn't worth it. 
your diligence but, um, is inconvenient to to, to comedy <laughs> yeah that's true um I would love to. Obviously, I would, because we've just um, published an open letter to Boris Johnson that actually just got a reply uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and we employed we or we used the power and the heft of uh, celebrities. We, you know, we asked Billy Bragg and Ed O'Brien from Radiohead, Stan Donwood from Radiohead. And, and obviously in the Telegraph, they're all like, what do artists know about access rights and stuff? Well, the thing is, artists are... Um, are basically just people uh, and then they've become celebrated in some way by by sort of doing something that kind of spurs people's empathy with it kind of thing uh, and we're definitely going to use music we're definitely going to use um, the arts because I see them as the kind of uh, non-violent weapons of the commons you know this is people and making people laugh is it's just a huge one so um, I don't know if you're genuinely committing to uh, help us uh, like do you know you must have a million commitments but we take any help because there really is a zeitgeist out there there really yes. is like the the just the thousands of emails we got when we launched the campaign and then thousands again and it's still just me and my mate guy and um we've got to delegate <laughs> that's what we've got to do first we could here's my just off the top of my head thinking we could take some kids sort of from a in a sort of a, from an area where you sort of think like you know like we could take some scientific study that says it's proven that children like ought have access to natural spaces it's good for their mental health da 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 these kids sympathetic cut to perfect sympathetic kids are uh, you know sort of from this inner city area they deserve access we take those kids and you know a, a, a minder and parent whatever to with permission, uh, uh, with permission. <laughs> this is not a kidnap uh, to like home park to experience it and then like sort of the thing is is of course that you know like it's on camera that the, the like an arrest made under those conditions is not a sympathetic uh, is not a sympathetic document i mean i don't know what like the sort of right to broadcast and it would be online rather than television like f footage shot on private property Mm. Is I don't know how that means it makes it aggravated trespass, but right, to be as soon honest, as you have a camera or a pen, you said that in exactly, your book. yeah. But um, but aggravated trespass only puts it up uh to three months in prison, and this particular spot is one of 16 that you will just go to prison for a year, no questions asked. Um, Has anyone been anyway. convicted of that? Of oh, I actually didn't. It was so off my agenda. I was like, there's no bloody way I'm going <laughs> to... Well, to be to be honest, the reason I didn't end up... Because the book ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, do, does he, doesn't he, sort of Italian job kind of thing. And it's just my brother basically works uh, for um, uh, the state and uh, in one of those positions where they would uh, sort of... They do a five-year review over all of his friends and associates just wow. so that people from ISIS can't come and bribe him. But we had a we had an interesting Christmas two Christmases ago where he was like, "You can't do that," uh, and I was like, you, "You, I'm doing a book about people telling me I can't do stuff." <laughs> and um, but he was right, I think, because it would have been presented. But we could. The thing is, what like 2021 is going to be the year that we start our trespasses and uh both myself and guy shrubsole who wrote who owns england um we've got a list of places that tell 
a story much in the same way that uh, the specific places in my book have been chosen because they tell the, the, the wider story of English land rights in a way that is just all condensed into one thousand acre woodland or something like that. Um, so we've got a whole list and we're going to come, we'll be coming to Sheffield, Birmingham, uh, Norfolk, where, where else are we going? Uh, Bristol, because it's the most damn radical city, basically because of Colston, which is incredible. Um, what they did to the statue rather than what he did. Colston's um, remarkable achievements, one of our greatest <laughs> slave traders. I'm off to Bristol. <laughs> to God bless inspired. you. Um, yeah, yeah we'd, we'd love to do something with you. And the more, you're absolutely right, the more high profile it is, uh, the the safer everyone is. This is it's called the media shield, isn't it? In, in right, it's um, right. It's as simple as that. So, um, what could be more patriotic fame? than the reclamation of England? To quote Morrissey, <laughs> England for the English. And of course, like Morrissey would be up for it. I don't know if that I would make any promises on behalf of, of, of Morrissey, <laughs> but, but other than using one of his lines as a potential slogan. Um, and I, uh, accept your, um, I, I accept your uh, definition of Englishness as being broader than, than it has previously been understood and the dispos- dispossession of those that perhaps feel most aggrieved by what the progressive narrative seems to present them might feel heartened by what is being offered at the core of these ideas an actual integral and real connection to this country that they have served seen relatives die for etc you know so I've yeah this is, is there's some cool stuff there hey man I've got to go because I'm supposed to go because uh, uh, like uh, the pod, the, there's a time limit. But I've l- loved meeting you, and do uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch, shall we? I'd hope so, mate. But yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for reading the book in the first place. Thanks. It was to my your Christmas wife present. It's my favourite Christmas present. Oh wow! <laughs> it <laughs> yeah, beats <my> socks. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It, it does. does. Um, well, I- yeah, no, you need both, don't you, in your line of work? Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Nick. Good luck. Take care there on the river, mate. Have a good day. You too. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. See you now. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that podcast just then with Nick Hayes. He's a very lucid and lovely talker. I wonder if I will go and do some trespassing. Yeah, will I? Yeah. All right. I will go and do that. Also, I do a new podcast now called Ask Me Anything, where essentially you interview me. If you want to ask me anything, go to russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything and record a voice message using your voice to ask me <laughs> a question you know your voice that you've got right Jen go on you do an example no I don't like my voice no one likes it <laughs> but use it now to ask me anything will you shave your beard off all together yeah or just leave oh, I would be happy with the moustache okay Maya <laughs> says no 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 we need to see yeah, but go, go back. Gareth? He's had it. A- ask me anything. He's had a beard for so long. Let him express himself. I've seen it. <laughs> Gareth said, I've seen it. Yeah, but like you haven't seen idea. it with the moustache. It might change everything. No. What do you think I might look like? A little pipkin? Because then you can have a bit of facial hair and like the jaw. I look, yeah, I might look like sort of a, <laughs> a weevily little knit. Why? <laughs> well, how far down is he no, going to go? Handlebar? No, not handlebar. 
Like, just here? Yeah. yeah. What do you and call that? And then you would have the jaw. It's just a moustache. Then you would have the jaw. <laughs> the jaw. How long does it take to grow back, gal? Only like a month. Oh, a years. month? Years. <laughs> years. years? No. Years. Maybe two weeks. I don't know. What? Ask we... me anything. <laughs> All right. I, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. You should try it. it. So I'd be sat doing videos with a little tash. <laughs> yeah, it would be great. I'll let my children do it. They do like shaving bits of me. I let, yeah. I let Mabel have a go of the shaver thing. She, Mabel, Why did she point at your chest? Because she shaved up my chest. She shaved right up my chest. And Peggy go, Daddy, wear your chin. Daddy, wear your chin. And the little things. And the little things, she said, poking at my chin. She's right. <laughs> all right i will do it there see ask me anything it works next time you see me i'll have a right little nice mustache i'll do it i'll do an instagram post i'm not yeah. afraid Good. I, i'm not afraid to, to to use the internet to garner attention all right so um there you go you can ask me anything as jenny may finn just did by going to russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything your voice will be on the podcast uh, exclusive to Luminary subscribers. The first ep episode of Ask Me Anything came out last week. Make sure to sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com. Go there. You get little mailing list things. You get videos sent. You get the opportunity to attend these Zoom calls where you charge you five quid and it gets given to charity. We've given it to things like One Can Trust, a food bank. We gave it to uh, Treasures, Help Women with Addiction Issues. We give it to who? BAC O'Connor, lovely little drug rehab. Who else we done? We've helped all sorts of people. Have you mentioned the hospice? hospice? Yeah. That hospice man for that children's hospital, but I don't remember the name of it again. I think it's Alexander. Alexander Devine. Yeah. Alexander Devine. Well done, Charlie. So anyway, and if you want to get in touch with me on social media, you can do that mostly by you know I'm called Russell Brand, and that's it really. All right. So thanks very much for listening to that podcast. Do we know who it's going to be next week? Actual Jesus coming back from beyond the grave for a New Year's podcast. Who? Edith Eager. Ego? Ego? Edith Eager. Didn't, isn't that a person who survived the Holocaust? Yeah. yeah. Right, well, let's, let's have a little bit of respect. She thought she'd suffered enough. But no, <laughs> now it's under the skin. Edith Eager, no, she's apparently a fantastic human being and I think it will be brilliant. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast with um, our man there, Nick Hayes, have a listen to Ed Stafford. He's a survival dude. Bra Bruce Parry, similarly, the happy pair. That Oh, they want me to do their podcast, Charlie. I gave um, their email to you. I should do Anyway, this isn't really podcast content anymore. I'm, I I'm rambling now and not in a Nick Hayes trespassing way rambling, just verbal incontinence. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin only from Luminary.